Yeah, so we're looking at this series on Colossians um, called Christ in You, the Hope of Glory. Yeah, that's good. And actually today we get to that verse, Christ in You, the Hope of Glory, which is kind of like, it's just amazing. So I'm going to try and unpack that for you uh, a bit later on. But what I want to, to say is what I'm going to do uh, this morning is I'm going to open up something that Paul says, which is just the most incredible truth about you. We're going to learn something about you, about who you are. But with every incredible truth, the enemy doesn't want you to actually use it. So we're going to have a warning this morning as well. So say I'm going to get a truth and I'm going to get a warning. See, you can do it. You've, you've been a bit quiet this morning, I think. So I, I, I thought a bit more noise. Yeah? Is that okay? Okay, so we're going to start Colossians chapter 1. Uh, it does speed up. I've only got three weeks left after this on it. But, you know, we're getting into chapter 2 today. Colossians chapter 1 and beginning at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I fill up in my flesh that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Just, I'm not going to talk about this, but what he's saying there is actually the gospel of Christ needs to have legs. It needs the body of Christ to do something with it because Christ can't do that. He, he's provided everything we need, but it needs legs on it and you're the legs. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, I've been the legs for you. For the sake of his body, which is the church. I've been made a servant of it according to the commission of God, which has been given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now is revealed to his saints. To them, God would make known what is the glorious riches of this mystery among the nations. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory whom we preach, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present them perfect in Christ Jesus. In this I labor, striving according to his power, which effectively is working in me. So he's doing it by the power of God working in him. Amen? We don't do the things of the gospel out of our own strength and of our own power. We don't do church out of our own strength and our own power. Jesus said, I'll build my church. And he intends to do it through his spirit. He intends to do it through the spirit of Christ living in us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Okay? Good. Right. Here we go then. When I say Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's my first question. So it's kind of a little bit interactive, a bit reflective. Do you believe Christ is in you? Okay? Okay, that wasn't very convincing, I have to say. We were all right here, and we're kind of all right where Dennis is sat, but the rest of you seem a bit troubled by that. So we'll try that again. Do you believe Christ is in you? Yes. Good. That's the right answer if you're a believer. It's the wrong answer if you're not a believer. 
Christ is only in believers. The Spirit of Christ only dwells in believers. Now, here's my second question. Because you've now said you believe Christ is in you. Here's my second question. How does that affect your life? Is it affecting your life right now in what you're doing? Where you are and what you're facing? You see, here's the point. We can believe a lot of things, but if it doesn't make any difference in our life, they're worthless. Because they're stuck in our head instead of being lived out. And, and too often, we, we believers, we say we believe this, I believe that, I believe that. What we mean is I read it, I heard it in a sermon, and therefore it's in my accumulated knowledge. The gospel that makes no difference in a personal life is no gospel at all. It's useless because it's meant to change us and it's meant to change all the lives around us. It's meant to affect people's lives around us. When I say Christ in you, people should be able to say, I see Christ in them. And if they're not saying that about us, it's because we have been robbed of some truths that would affect our life. You getting this? Okay. I make no apologies for if, you, if this is like your first morning or your second morning or whatever. I, I don't apologize for being um, asking hard questions. You see, the gospel is meant to change lives, cities, towns, nations. And it's because people do not see Christ in Christians that it's not doing. Because if they did, it would do, because Jesus says the fields are white for harvest. And so, you know, too often we sit in church, this church, any other church, the body of Christ sits in church, listens to speaker after speaker after speaker after speaker, saying all sorts of things, saying, I believe a lot of things, but they don't believe them because it makes no difference to their life. You see, you cannot have something that you really believe that doesn't affect who you are and the way you live. And so the world see, needs to see difference in us. They need to see Christ in us. Are we getting this? So Paul, the guy that wrote the letter to the Colossians, even though he'd never been there, one of his uh, trainees planted this church in Colossae. And what he says is... I'm rejoicing in what was suffered for you. What's he saying? Well, he's saying this. I'm writing this from prison. And the reason I'm in prison is because people could see a difference in my life and they locked me up for it. Because they saw that I was dangerous to the establishment. They saw that I was dangerous to their religion. They saw, and the enemy saw, that I was dangerous to him, so he used men to try and stop this gospel. But men cannot stop the gospel. The enemy cannot stop the gospel. The only thing that can stop the gospel is us not living it and not really believing it. Amen? Okay. So Paul is saying, what he's saying is this. I'm going to tell you a mystery. And this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you can see in me, Paul, what that mystery looks like. Because I'm living from the place of Christ in me. Even though I'm in prison right now, I'm living from the place of Christ in me. And even though I'm in prison right now, 
as a result of me being in prison, this gospel is still going to the ends of the earth. Is that a paradox? You can lock up somebody like Paul, and yet the gospel, as a result of locking him up, still goes to the ends of the earth even more effectively than it was doing when it relied just on him walking around saying it. Isn't that incredible? You know, we, have a, we had a real-life example of that maybe 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, where the, what Nelson Mandela was saying from prison was much more powerful than when he wasn't in prison. And sometimes the enemy can come up with a plan, but God can use that plan to make it even more effective for the kingdom. So what we have to concentrate on is not what we're going through or living through at any moment. It's, it's the fact that if we live from that place of Christ in us, the gospel will spread. The truth about Christ will spread. And you, you might... Um, in those verses, it talks about uh, the word, I preach the word of God in all its fullness. I preach the word of God in all its fullness. Now, here's, my, here's another question for you. What do you think is the most important message for Christians to know and believe? Love? Pardon? Christ in you. Paul is saying the fullness of the gospel is not being preached unless people see and hear about Christ in you. And he's saying the way this works is it's like a mystery. Remember Arthur talked about the mystery a couple of weeks ago, the mystery of the gospel that was kept hidden but is now being opened up. And what's that mystery? Well, Arthur, Arthur called it the church age. But Paul calls it the church age, Christ in you. Before Christ, there was no spirit of Christ could live in a believer. Nobody lived from the spirit of Christ within them. Now, the church age is, is meant to be shown and demonstrated by the fact that people know that living right in them, in their spirits, is exactly the same spirit as lived in Christ when he was on earth. The Holy Spirit. That's what the world's men are saying. What the world's going to see when it sees me, when it sees you, when it sees each one of us. And it's meant to see it in all the hours we aren't at church. Because they're not watching us right now. This is training. This is reminding ourselves who we are. But the minute we walk out, the world is meant to see Christ in us. We're meant to look different. We're meant to appear different. We're meant to live different. You see, when I asked that question right at the start, who believes Christ is in them? The question we really need to say is, can people see Christ is in us? Can they see that in the way we live our lives? The way we face things? In a sense, I, I, this is more Shevel's little bit than mine, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and do it as well as I can. But expressing the heart of why we started faith life in the first place. And the reason we started faith life in the first place is, is this, this wonderful woman here got absolutely 
brokenhearted about the number of Christians that she encountered who were stuck, didn't know who were in Christ, were filling up seats in churches and making no difference in other people's lives, but more to the point, not able to see the difference Christ made in their lives because they did not know these truths. And that's why Faith Life started. That's what we started teaching. That's what we were teaching in the discipleship group that grew into being faith life. You see, I don't think it's right to be critical of specific people within the body of Christ. That doesn't help anybody. However, the truth is that at some point we have to say some things are wrong. Not about people, because pe most people, nearly all people in the body of Christ, are trying their best 24-7, using all their energies to do what they believe Jesus wants them to do. But when we make attracting people or keeping people in our church and numbers of people in our church, the determinant of whether we are preaching correctly, we get it totally wrong. Because we end up preaching to what the people want to hear because we don't want them to leave. And we end up preaching what we want people to hear because we want them to come. And we set ourselves targets. We want X number of people by the end of this year. We want, we want to have done, uh, you know, we want to start a second service by this time next year. And, and that becomes the goal and the vision of the church. We get it really wrong when Jesus is not the goal and the vision of the church. And relationship with Jesus is not the goal and the vision of the church. You see, we've made a fundamental error in that way of thinking because we assume it's our job to build the church. And it's not. Jesus says that was his job. I will build my church. And we think it's our church and we've got we to build it and we've got to do all these things and these incredible man-made schemes, plans, ideas, strategies, uh, planning documents, fundraisings, all the rest of it. And we kill ourselves trying to do it when the world outside is not affected one iota by the fact we're doing all that because all we're doing is moving people from one church to another. And there's less people in the kingdom ten, these 10 years than there was when we started. And that's a worrying thing, and yet we're oblivious to it. What's the problem? The problem isn't that we're not doing great church meetings. The problem is people aren't seeing Christ in the body of Christ. Because we don't talk about him anymore. We don't, we don't talk about the power of the body of Christ, let alone we don't step out and actually pray in faith and believe things in faith. You know, somebody, I think I mentioned it, somebody said uh, they, they were, it was another minister and they were criticising me. Not that they've ever listened to anything I've ever said, but they thought they'd criticise me because they go, oh, I've heard about him, he's one of them faith teachers. And I thought, well, isn't that Brilliant. Isn't it brilliant? Who wants to be known as an unbelief teacher? Who wants to be known as a nothing teacher? I thought, that's brilliant. Even the people who are criticising me have worked out that you need faith somehow. They just don't know how to do it. You see, the importance, and 
and it's sometimes difficult to grasp when you're here week in, week out. But what we teach and who we are is so important. We're carrying something that God has given us to do that is vital. And, and you go, well, how's that? Because I'm just here week in, week. And when you're here week on week, you don't appreciate it. Here's the thing. Some of you, if you had not known the things that you were taught here, would be dead. I'm not joking. You wouldn't have got healed. Some of you would be sick. Sicker than you are. Some of you would not be married anymore. There would be people whose relationships were permanently broken. Some of you would still be addicted to the things you were addicted to. And going beyond this group, that is magnified several times over by people who have been touched by the lives of people in this church. And that's why it's so important that we teach the fullness of the gospel, the mystery of Christ in you. And we can't compromise on that, and we won't compromise on that in order to try and get people through the door or stop them leaving through the door. Why? Because if we compromise on it, people will die, marriages will break down, relationships will crumble, people will stay addicted, lives will not be changed, jobs will not happen, the world will be different. And I'm not prepared to pay that cost because Christ has given us a mission to live. Amen? Amen. Okay. So here's the question. What is, when Jesus says... Christ in you. So I've done the Christ in you bit. Here's the other bit. When Jesus says the hope of glory, what does he mean? Okay, you don't have to answer. I've got a multiple choice. <laughs> multiple. I'm making this easy for you. So answer number A. The hope that you will shine brightly. B. The hope of being with the Lord in heaven. Okay. That's the one most of the church will say. Most of the traditional church leave the gospel that you've been forgiven for your sins and one day crawling across the finish line and getting to heaven. That's our great hope that's out there. And it is a hope. I'm going to heaven. I either get to fly up to meet Jesus and, and go to heaven or I get to go to heaven when I die. Either way, it's cool. So we're going to heaven. Number C. The hope of displaying the nature and character of God. D, the hope of being praised and thought of as something great. I was kind of hoping we were going for that one. The answer is C and B and A. You see, and D. In 1 Corinthians, it says you have been given these for your glory. You're meant to be seen as something and somebody that the world wants to be like. So they're all kind of true. But the biggie is C. I'm going to show you that. How many of you know that in Romans, it says that as a fallen creation, we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. So some of you didn't know that. 
Oh, you're quiet. We've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. That's what Romans says. When it says that, what do we fall short of? It's saying we fall short of his moral character and standard. So we're talking about his moral character and standard. Now, in ourselves and in our own strength, we will continue to fall short of God's glory. But as believers, because we have the spirit of Christ in you, through dependence upon Christ, because he's dwelling in you, you can break free of the bondage of sin, failure, desperation, addiction, and all the rest of it. You can start not to fall short of God's glory. Now, that's something that's not available to an unbeliever. So you've got something, you've got special privilege here, and the idea is we should use it. We should use it. Because it's now possible for us to live different, to be different, to be someone different. And that's great news because it means we are not a victim or eternally stuck with our past. We are not stuck with our failed relationships. We are not stuck with our messages. Um, <laughs> messes. We are not stuck with our messes. We are not stuck by all the things that people have done for us. There is a different future ahead for a believer than the past that we left behind. Thank you. Good. He's getting it. Can we all catch up with Roger now? Because he's doing well. Okay. You know, um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure whether I've ever shared my testimony in church. Does anybody remember me sharing my testimony? How I became a Christian. How I became a Christian. All right, well, I'll just focus on one little bit of it for those that, that, that haven't heard it. So, before, it's about this breaking fear of your past. You see, as a teenager, I grew up on uh, a council estate. Um, our family, particularly one of my cousins, had a, a reputation for being the hardest, hardest guy in school. I was in the year below him, and I, my destiny was to try and prove him wrong, that I was the hardest guy in school. And that's how we grew up. We grew up fighting. I grew up fighting. I grew up getting in all sorts of scrapes and trouble. And the group of guys that I hung around with, which included my cousin and, and others, and we used, to, we used to circulate on this little patch of, of grass in the middle of our council estate called the Green. And it had one tree in it, which was a goalpost, and we had to find another, you know, we, we piled up our, our jumpers to make the other goalpost, and that's where we hung out. And, and over time, like, I, I was going in the wrong direction. My language was really foul, but more to the point, I was getting in petty theft. And one of the things that, you know, I, I developed this great system for stealing comics, like, I don't know why you want to steal comics, but, you, like, I, I developed this great system for stealing comics. And so I'm going down, I'm going down this path and, and starting to get in trouble. And we went on holiday. And when we went on holiday, um, I came back two weeks later. We went to the, the amazing place called Blackpool for a fortnight. 
I cannot, remain, I cannot recommend going to Blackpool for a day, let alone a fortnight. But we went to Blackpool for a fortnight. And when I came back, all my friends were locked up because they'd set fire to a train while I was away in a goods yard, a train carriage. And, and so if I'd been there, I'd probably have been locked up too. And that pulled me up short. And a couple of weeks later, I went along to um, this youth club that a church was running. Somebody shared the gospel with me, gave me a little booklet called Journey Into Life, talked about what was missing in my life. And I said the pair, and I became a believer. I was really soft, easy territory because I'd had the shock. Like, <laughs> I could have been in jail. So it's jail or Jesus, which do we go for? And, and more to the point, I'm going, I'm going to pray. And God, all the things that my mum doesn't know about, can you make sure, now I'm your child, that she never finds out about? <laughs> and she didn't. So that's cool. And you're not going to tell her because she's still alive, she's 94, and I'm still scared of her, okay? <laughs> right. But here's the thing. The first thing I noticed is a few weeks later... I, was go I, was, I got in a fight, and I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I stopped fighting. And then about three months later, I was really shocked to find this out, but somebody came up to me, and they said, what's, what's happening with you? And I said, I, I, what do you mean? They said, you haven't sworn. I can't remember the last time you swore. Now, I never tried to stop swearing. It just happened, and it was a real surprise to me because I hadn't noticed until this guy came and said it to me, and I'm thinking, I haven't, have I? Because I usually use expletives instead of commas. <laughs> you know, like you do. And, and that's it. I don't swear. It's bad. It's bad. So don't swear. But this is what I mean. You are not stuck with your past because Christ in you allows change, and he'll do it if you let him. So that, that's where... Now, how do we, when we talk about the goodness of God and, and his moral character, what are we talking about? How do I know that that's what Paul is talking about when he says the hope of glory? Okay, go with me. We're going to look at a little story, then we're coming back to Colossians. Go with me to Exodus chapter 33, and beginning at verse 12. Now, what we've got here is we've got Moses, and Moses is under pressure. He's leading two million people who are proving difficult to lead. In fact, they're proving terrible to lead. And he's basically leading this entire two million plus people through a wilderness and all he's getting for his trouble is mourning. Mourning and complaining. I'm sure you've all got people around you like those two million people who approach life by moaning and complaining all the time. Well, Leahs, we're going to find out how to deal with them because we're going to find out how Moses deals with moaning, complaining people he's trying to help. Have you noticed that? That some of the most moaning, complaining people are the ones you're trying to help and they complain about how you're trying to help them. And you think, well, if I wasn't trying to help you at all, you'd be worse. But you're having to complain. And, and here's what happens. 
They're surrounded by enemies at this point. All the nations around them, all the, the, the tribes that were inhabiting the land and out in the wilderness and, and sort of thieves and, and bands of robbers and all that. They're surrounded by all these sort of people. Everything's piling in on Moses. So what does Moses do? He goes and has a conversation with God. Good plan. Here's what it says. Moses, uh, Exodus chapter 38. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me to lead these people. But you've not let me know whom you're going to send with me. In other words, God, why have you left this all up to me? Do I not get any help around here? You've said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're really pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation, these two million mourning, complaining, twining people who I'm trying to help, Jesus, are your people. They're not mine. I'm doing this for you. So what, how are you going to help me? This is God's response. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So when everything piles in, what does God say? My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But us as New Covenant believers, he's saying, my presence is always with you. I'm reminding you of that. You rest in that. Allow me to live through you. Amen? Okay. Now let's go on a bit. Let's go to... Uh, Chapter 33, verse 15 to 17. Fiddle your pages around. It's not far. Next chapter. Chapter 33. Oh, it's the same chapter. Just, just a bit further down. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, I'm not going anywhere because I've had it. I've had it. I'm not going anywhere. If your presence isn't going with me, I'm not going anywhere because I can't do this. Isn't that an incredible realisation that... He can't do it without God. And kind of that's a starting point for most of us every day. That we can't do it without God. We can't do it without God being in there. Remember I said, if you believe Christ is in you, it should make a difference to how you do your life. forgot where I was now. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else is there that would distinguish us and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. How will the world know God is pleased with you if they can't see the presence of God in your life. Moses is going, I can't think of another way that people will see that you're really there with me and are pleased with me if your presence is absent. 
Wake up, church, because for decades now we have done church without the presence of God. We're not that bothered whether he turns up or not, as long as we fill seats. We're not that bothered whether he's there on Monday morning or not, as long as we don't get into trouble, we don't get any hassle, and our boss continues paying us. I think it's really concerning the state of the church in the Western world, wherever. Because we are trying all the time to do church without the presence of God. And we are trying all the time to grow churches full of people who do not experience the presence of God and not taught about the presence of God and not given the opportunity to learn what it's like to step into the presence of God. And yet Moses says, how else would anybody tell that you're with us? And then we go, this country's going down the pan, isn't it? Everything's terrible. All the stuff you hear on the news, all the agendas that all the minority groups have that are starting to run our lives, and we go, well, I don't understand how bad the world's got. Why has it got like that? No presence of God in the lives of a believer. We're walking in a really dangerous ground. So Moses says this, he says, okay, I want to see what it is that makes your presence so special, God. What, what is it? I know I can't live without it, but I want to know what it is. Where's it come from? Where's it come from? So go with me to verse 18. And Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Got it? Glory, goodness. God's goodness is God's glory. God's love is God's glory. God's compassion is God's glory. God's kindness is God's glory. God's concern for you is God's glory. God's concern for the one in front of you is God's glory. I will proclaim the name, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I proclaim the name of the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And then go on to chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where he actually does it. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is the glory of God. When God's presence is upon us and in us, that's what the world should see in us and through us. Goodness, kindness, compassion, 
faith, gentleness, love. These aren't things that you can plan and strategize. The things that God has to change our hearts so that we become. We live from the place of who we are. Are you getting this? Are you learning something? Okay. Let me show you something then. When God does this, he says, here's what I'm going to do. You can't look on this fully. Why? Because Moses is not a newly created being. He doesn't have the Spirit of God in him. He's, he's not, Jesus hasn't dealt with his sins. Moses looks at this full on, fries, not good. So God says, this is how it works. And he gives us this picture that is true for us as New Testament believers. He says, as I go past, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. And from there, you'll be able to see and access my glory. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock, and from there you'll be able to see and access my glory. You live in the rock. Jesus is the rock. It's a, this is a, like a, a picture of who you are as a New Testament believer. Christ is the rock. You are hidden in him. And in him you live and move and have your being. And therefore you can see and experience and more than that manifest the goodness and glory of God in your life. Amen. And that's good news. Okay. Let's go. Verse 20, back to Colossians. Go back to Colossians. From, um, I'll go from, where shall I go from? Uh, I'll go from chapter 1, verse 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ, in the rock, in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labour, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in, in Laodicea as and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may encourage be knit together in love, attaining all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are you? You're in Christ. Hidden in him is all the wisdom and treasures of knowledge. You have access to them. This is the mystery that is unfolding. This is who you are as a believer. This is what the world should be seeing. When you're faced with something, it should see supernatural, extraordinary wisdom. Because the Holy Spirit has supernatural, extraordinary wisdom and he's living in you and you're in Christ. It should see when you're faced with a problem or a difficulty, supernatural understanding. Yeah. Not normal understanding, supernatural understanding. Why? Because it's in you, him and you are in him. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. 
For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Here's the thing. In him, you are meant to live and move and have your being and the world is meant to see him wherever you are. 10 o'clock Monday morning, 3 o'clock Wednesday afternoon and not just 5 o'clock Friday afternoon because you're getting out of work and Sunday mornings. The rest of the week, we're meant to see the glory of God. The world is meant to see the glory of God living in you. And the way it sees the glory of God living you is simple. Paul says it this way, as you therefore receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? By faith. So he did it through grace, provided everything so that you could be born again, forgiven of your sins, set free, healed, delivered, life changed. And how did you receive it? Through faith. You did nothing to earn it. And this is what Paul is going to say. He said, this incredible truth, the reason why you can say it and yet the world can't say you believe it and yet the world can't see it is because somebody has stolen it. They've stolen it from you. And the way they have stolen it is empty deceit and lies. They've got you to think about all the things that don't matter as if they were the only things that did matter. Go with me here. Yeah, so just to come back to it before I go there, this is what he's saying. Jesus plus nothing is all you need. And that's the secret Paul found out, and that's why he can write this from prison, that the gospel that he preaches is changing the word, and it's even more powerful as a result of him being in prison, because Jesus plus nothing is everything. 100% additive free, no nasties, no colorings, no Natama chili sauce in it. No extra ingredients, 100% pure goodness in every part. And if you know that, the enemy will not be able to move you off the truth. But the fact is, and this is the warning, the enemy is really good at moving us off the truth, which is why we can say we believe something, and yet the world can't see it, and we can't see it in our life. Because we've got moved off this truth. Jesus plus nothing. And so he goes on and he says, right, here's the three things that are going to mess you up. The three things that is going to allow the enemy to turn you from a walking, moving, life-changing, city-transforming, school-obliterating, whatever, mobile army of God who, who, who walks and people see healings, see lives changed, see bondages broken, see addictions broken, see people set free. This is what will stop that happening in your life. The enemy steals the truth of Jesus plus nothing and who, that he lives in you. And he does it this way. Go in with Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. 
Some of you probably have a, a different translation. It says, I like the other translation. It's this. It says, some of people will deceive you with plausible arguments. We live so much of our lives according to the plausible arguments of other people and society instead of the truth of God's word. That's what he's saying. You see, the thing about plausible arguments, the, the words that are translated there, persuasive or plausible arguments, it could also have been translated enticing. Enticing. They play on our best things. They play on what we want. And what instead of offering is God's way of getting it, the offer is man's way of getting it. Instead of God's supernatural solutions, they offer us man's effort-based natural solutions. And it sounds plausible. I've read, I guess in the last five, ten years, I've probably read 50 books on how to be a good pastor and grow your church. And I have to say that in all those 50 books, not one of them has any role for the Holy Spirit in it whatsoever. And that, and all, this is written by guys who have the biggest churches in the world and not one of them talks about how God builds his church. So, here we go. Why is that? Because it plays on our desire that if we build something from God, from our efforts and our sweat and our wisdom and our cleverness and our exploiting other people and all the rest of it, then God will be pleased with us because we built a big church for him. And Jesus is going, no. I build the church. What you do is you carry it. You are the church. You go, believe me, trust me, and see life change, see bodies healed, see life transformed. You see, all this plays on our desire for us to build something. Here's the really sad thing. It works. It fills buildings. Yet the overall church population, church-going population is in sharp decline. The number of conversions, people being reached, and actually making it into church in the UK is at a historical low. America has huge churches. The American church-going population has declined from 40% to 26% in the last 50 years. And yet, the huge churches are saying, this is the way you get people saved. The way you get people saved is you save them. I can't get somebody, Joyce knows, saved, but Joyce can. I can't get somebody, Anna knows, I can't lead them to Christ, I can't talk to them about Christ, Anna can. That's the way you get people saved. How many, how many of you came to Christ because somebody told you about him that you knew? You knew the person. You, you were taken somewhere by them. Yeah? We, we don't... People generally now, with, you know, they'd rather watch Netflix than walk into a church in the off chance they might get saved. It doesn't work like that. Here's what I'm saying. We get off the truth of the gospel 
And overall, the body becomes ineffective because we've fallen for plausible arguments that look like they should work. And the reason they look like they should work is because that's how you make a business work. And businesses that follow those principles work. Businesses that follow those principles work and put all their competitors out of business. Church doesn't work like that. It shouldn't work like that. Here's the second thing. As you therefore receive Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any... Say, beware. beware. Say, I'm going to beware. I'm going to beware when I walk out this building tomorrow. Well, not when you walk out tomorrow. I'm not going on that long, but you get the point. Beware lest anyone cheat you through what? Philosophy and empty deceit. According to the traditions of men, according to basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's the thing. You might not like that word philosophy. People go to university to study philosophy. But I can guarantee you, you have a philosophy. Everybody lives their life according to the philosophy they believe. You've got a philosophy. Now, your only choice is, is that going to be a God philosophy or is it going to be a natural human philosophy? And a natural human philosophy will produce certain results. And a God philosophy will produce very different results. And that's what Paul's saying. The reason you can get cheated of this and say, I believe it, but I, don't, I never see it, or people can't see it in my life, is because we get stolen. Because we run our lives according to a world philosophy. And I understand why that is, because the word philo world philosophy fills everything. Every waking second, you are having stuff pumped at you. We live in a very dangerous time. You cannot get away from your mobile phones and your Facebooks and your Instagrams and your televisions and, and all the rest of it. Everything is pumped at you 24-7. So this is a time of even greater danger than the church has faced in the past. And so we have all this philosophy pumped at us and we have to decide that we are going to stick with Jesus plus nothing, Christ in you, that is all I need. Because we are believing for the supernatural, not a natural philosophical result. Because we believe in a supernatural God. When it says uh, make captive, and this is where I get the stealing bit from, or that you have been spoilt, some of your versions will say. You've, you've been taken as spoil or whatever. When it says make captive, it means to plunder, become a victim of fraud, or to be carried off like a predator with their prey. You see, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this. He's talking about when we face things, when we live our lives, are we doing it based on our ideas and plans at the expense of what God has said? You see, here's the thing. Moses said, I'm not, I'm not going without the presence. I'm not going without Christ in me. He was saying, I'm not going without the presence with me. We're saying something worse. We're saying, I have the presence in me, but I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to show it. I'm not going to live in it. I'm not going to dwell in his presence. 
That's not my priority. My priority is getting on with life. My priority is being success. My priority is doing this. My priority is just getting through to the next day. I like when it says empty deceit. That word empty deceit is, it means futile. But this is, this is I, I love this, I found this in, in my concordance, my strongs. And it says this, the word empty deceit means it looks good but leads nowhere except to give you more questions. Looks good but leads nowhere except to give you more questions. Here's the thing, there's stuff in play in our lives that will rob us of the truth of Christ in us. And what's in play is worldly philosophy, worldly ideas, and worldly values. And worldly philosophy, worldly ideas, and worldly plans will not release the supernatural power of God in our lives. Yeah, we can sit there, we can read the Bible, and we can go, I believe that. But as long as we run our life based on these other things, we can't see it and others can't see it. Here's the good news, and I'm going to finish on good news. So you, you, can, you can all stand because I'm done. I'm done. Done to a turn. <laughs> Can you put the Jesus plus nothing slide back up? Because this is the good news. Jesus plus nothing is everything. We have to stick and live our lives by the gospel that saved us in the first place. Paul says, carry on like you were first saved. As you first were saved, so now walk in it. He doesn't say You've been saved, guys. Just get on with your life. He's saying it's so important that as you were first saved, you continue to walk in it in that same way. You're not meant to live ordinary lives. You're meant to be world changers. You told me you believe Christ lived in you. You have no option, therefore, to follow that with the logical conclusion, I am therefore a world changer. So live it. Let that love out. Let that compassion out. Let that kindness out. Let that faith in God out. Let that trust in God out. Live your life trusting him not the world. Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the pure goodness of the gospel. No additives, no nasties, no colorings. 100% pure goodness in every part. And we thank you, Lord, that you dwell in us the hope that that gospel, that goodness, that purity is what people will see in our life that we no longer fall short of your glory, but we are carriers and demonstrators of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Do we give him thanks? Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus.